That's kind of fun. You know, why not? So, some of us don't have those problems, but that's okay. It's a good problem to have any day. Those are first world problems, aren't they? Take your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 51 tonight. Psalm chapter 51. And as you're turning there, uh, let me ask you a question. What do you think of when you think of Psalm 51? For those of you who know your Bibles and you particularly are familiar with this psalm, uh, you may think, oh, this is a pretty dark time in King David's life. Uh, you may have people like Bathsheba crop, crop, crop up into your head and her husband Uriah. And uh, you may even think that this is a time in David's life, remember the man after God's own heart that was stained with adultery and murder. Uh, you may even be like me this evening and and remember at times in your life just how helpful this psalm has been to you as you've sinned. You may never have committed adultery or murder, but you probably, like me, even have been in a pretty big self-inflicting failure where sin seems to stain really the entirety of your being. And, uh, and to be sure, David focuses pretty tremendously on this the stain of sin in his life. Um, but for a moment, as we look at some uh, amazing things about God's mercy and about His grace, I just want to kind of consider what is the backdrop or what is the, the, the behind the scenes of this psalm in David's life. Just to refresh our memory, I won't have us turn there because of time, but 2 Samuel 11 and 12 really give us further details about this episode in David's life, doesn't it? And we see that this, this, this wasn't just an, even an accidental thing, I don't think, in David's life. This was, a, this was a plotting, and this was, a as we'll see, a year-long almost, uh, as Pastor even mentioned, habitual sin in David's life. And even from the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, we have... Uh, David and Bathsheba conceive, and so now he has this problem of a, of a coming son. And so what does David do? He callously calls Uriah, right? And there's a war going on, and he calls Uriah from the front lines back to the palace where David's safe, and, and Uriah is, is Bathsheba's husband. And, and he, calls, he calls him, and he's trying to figure out what to do, and, and even in the... Even in the moment, 2 Samuel kind of gives us this, this irony where Uriah really doesn't want to even leave the palace. Why? Because there's a war going on, and how could he leave his king in the midst of this war? So David now has this problem where he can't even get Uriah to go home. He can't get Uriah to do anything. He, he's stuck with him. And so he plots again and, and sends a letter of instruction and tells uh, the commander, Joab, to, to put Uriah in the front lines and to make sure that you do something where Uriah is going to die. And so that happens, and, um, and, and we see that this is, this is a pretty callous and pretty plotting thing in David's life that he does. And the timeline, not just the details, not just the callousness of David's 
sin here in Psalm 51 that he's about to just kind of un- unload. But even the timeline is instructive. As I mentioned, this was, this was not a, a uh, one hour or even one day or even one week thing in David's life. Uh, but it was really uh, since, since conception all the way to the birth of his son, which is at, at least... Last time I checked, nine months. Is that correct, ladies? Nine months. All right. We're, we're pretty close to that here with Charla, so if she would say yes, it's at least that long. It seems longer. I know. You guys are heroic. And, and so uh, David is living with this, with this adultery, and then he plots and he murders. And what happens in David's life? 2 Samuel chapter 12 gives us a full account of what stops David in his tracks. And in our text this evening, while it's not inspired, your title, your note, probably has something like this. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when who? Nathan the what? The prophet. Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. And so really what we see this evening is that that though the details of of David's sin is great and gross, and though the the time, it seems to be an extended amount of time in David's life, that there is a sure measure. And as we look at this psalm, we can kind of get really bogged down into the background of, of David's life. And we can get bogged down into the details, into the depth of failure of David and his sin. But really, on the contrary, in the depths of David's failure, we see the remarkable depth of God's mercy and grace to those he forgives. And so as we, as we kind of consider tonight some of the... Some of the details and the grossness of a man after God's own heart. Let's not forget just how great and loving and merciful and gracious our forgiving God is. And so really we're going to we're going to pop the hood tonight. And we're going to we're going to look into the into the mechanics of God's mercy and grace, his loving kindness, his love displayed to those whom he forgives. Because really, isn't the question, can't the question be, how in the world could God forgive adultery and murder and adultery plus murder and the plotting for almost a year? Right? And then if we're really theologically astute and accurate, we could say, well, how can God forgive continually such a sinful person? Not like David, but like you and me. And so tonight we're going to see how God's forgiveness really operates in the believer's life. And and what mercy and grace flows out. And so really our, our title and our note gives us our first point tonight. The prophet Nathan stops David in his tracks. And what was the prophet Nathan to David? 
He is what Psalm 51, like Romans chapter 9, is to us. It's the word of God for David, isn't it? And so, first of all, we see that God operates in his forgiveness through the word of God. He works in the believer's life through the word of God. And it was no different in David's day as it is today, albeit quite a different vehicle. I don't have someone slapping me on the head and saying, Steve, you shouldn't have said that to your wife in that kind of way. I sometimes need it, believe you me. But I do have the word of God through the Spirit of God, that will slap me and say, I need to be tender-hearted and say that I need to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And one of those fruits is gentleness and peace and kindness. And so, what is, what is the first operation? What is the first mechanic that God uses in His mercy and grace to forgive? Well, it is is really the operation through the Word of God. It's really the working of the Word of God in David's life. We see that here in verses 1 through 8, where we're not going to really read this psalm because of time, but we see that the Word convinces David or convicts David of his sin. Do you and I need the Word of God to convict us and to convince us of the sin in our lives? You better believe it. That's why even we celebrate and and Jesus set up the Lord's table, isn't it? Because sometimes we get so far down self-deceived in our tracks that we need a time like this to say, are we living the way God has called us to live? Are we living according to the Word of God? You know, Jeremiah says the heart is more deceitful, doesn't he? Hebrews says, encourage one another day after day, right? As long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the what? The deceitfulness of sin. Paul in Romans chapter 10 says that the very reality of us coming to a faith understanding is through the hearing of the word of God. And so, the Word of God is is the agent through the Spirit that convinces us and convicts us of the sin that we have. We know it's living. We know it's more powerful than a sword, dividing and piercing and and convincing our spirit and our soul and the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. And so, the Word of God convinces us and convicts us of sin, and we We really see that here in Psalm chapter 51, verses 1 through 8. You see how many times David brings up the fact that he's transgressed, and he uses terms over and over again for sin. It's a wealth of definition for sin. You'll see in verse 2, iniquity, sin. Verse 3, transgression. Verse 3 again, sin. Verse 4, sinned. Verse 4, evil. Verse 5, iniquity. Verse 9, sins and iniquities. And so David has been hit square in the face with the word of God in his day through the prophet Nathan. Saying, David, you've sinned. You've sinned. This was not an emotional response because of the consequences of David's sin. He wasn't overwhelmed because there was a a baby on the way. This was a word of God response 
from David. This was not a guilt trip that came and well and went because he was embarrassed or shamed about what was coming. This was the word of God piercing and dividing and convicting and judging sin in David's life according to the way God calls sin, sin. This was not a New Year's resolution. How many of us have just blown out of the water, not even in the you know, first month of the New Year? Our New Year this was not a New Year's resolution that he'll make himself better, that he'll do better next time. This wasn't even a pick-yourselves-up-by-the-bootstraps kind of talk saying, you know, I'll just deal with the consequences and marry Bathsheba. And, and he does. But this is a Word of God response. And when a Word of God truly hits the believer square in the face, the believer will respond. This was not a self-assessment of, of his problems. Look at verse 4. This isn't, oh, I've messed up according to King David. Or I've messed up according to other people. He says, against you, you being God, and you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in what? In your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. This is, this is the biblical definition of confession. In the Greek, the confession, the word confession is literally two compound words. It's a, it's a compound word made up of two words, meaning to say the same thing. To say the same thing. And in the context of confessing to God, it means, like in verse 4, to say the same thing that God says about sin. That is true and biblical confession. And so this isn't a self-assessment or an assessment by anybody else but an assessment by God himself through the word of God. And that is important for us to understand as we understand how God operates in his mercy and in his loving kindness as he forgives. Because you and I have to have a relationship with the word of God. And we have to let the word of God do its work in our heart. Can you imagine how painful that year must have been for David? But God still works and works through his word. And so it, it convicts or convinces David of his sin. And it also tells us the source, it told David the source of his sin. Pastor pointed, pointed to a bunch of pronouns this morning. We're going to do the same thing here very quickly. But look at verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 9. My transgression, verse 2. My iniquity, my sin. Verse 3, my transgressions. Verse 3, my sin. Verse 4, I have sinned. Verse 9, my sins, my iniquities. Did David get the point or what? What is the source of sin in David's life? It wasn't because he was a handsome ruler and he had a, tar a target on his back. It wasn't, he wasn't the victim of some, you know, testosterone syndrome, like 50% of the room could claim. He was the victim of nothing short than being and having sin in his life. 
And he owns being a sinner. Look at verse 5. This is very important. This is, this is not, just, it's not just the reality that David acted out sinfully. But here in verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Sin originated in David, and it started when he was born. When he was, verse 5, not even that, conceived. Because it's not the act right, that David had a problem with. He had a problem because he was related to the one man named Adam. And through Adam, and every time since, there is sin. There is sin. And so David owns being a sinner, and he rightfully puts it where it is. It's not, it's not something that he's a, he falls victim to, and it's not something that he even does. It starts at who he is. It's a disposition. He says it this way in, verse 50, uh, in, in, uh, in Psalm 58. You don't have to turn there, but he says, David says this. He says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They, these who speak lies go astray from birth. So make no mistake about it, David wasn't saying, and, and I think most of us in this room understand, that he was not saying that his mother was immoral. What he's saying is he had the problem at conception. And there's absolutely no hope of not having the problem if you are related to Adam, which everyone in this room happens to be. Isaiah 48 quote, uh, really kind of, it's a statement from God, and it says, you have not heard, you have not known, even from long ago, your ear has not been opened, because I knew that you would deal very treacherously, and you have been called a rebel from birth. All the way back in Genesis. Genesis, uh, God says, I will never again curse the ground on the account of man, for the intent of man's heart is what? Evil from his youth. And so there's three examples tonight regarding the source of sin that I'd like us to consider. First of all, it's David. Right? David very plainly says, the source of my sin is from my birth. It's from even before me. He isn't conceived in a sinful act, but rather he is a sinner. What makes him a sinner is not that he did sinful things, in other words, David is not a sinner because he sinned. David sinned because he is a sinner. That's very important for us to understand. As we really especially interact in this culture and in this age. Paul puts it this way. Pastor already preached on it in Romans chapter 7. Paul says, but if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now... No longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Paul would say this same thing. He says it this way. I will sin, even though I don't want to, because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and I love what Jesus Christ has done for me, and I embrace it wholeheartedly. Paul says, I will sin because I'm a sinner. Because I was born a sinner. Then we have really... Uh, quite the opposite from David and Paul. We have Jesus. And in John chapter 7, it says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, 
And there is no unrighteousness in him. And so we could say it this way. Jesus could not and did not sin because he was born righteous, not a sinner. He stands in opposite, in contrast to every single person on the face of the planet. And so we have the source of sin. Through the word of God, it tells us that we ourselves are sinners. And we also have the problem of sin. David addresses this problem very plainly in chapter uh, 51, verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin. My mother conceived me. And then he says in verse 6, here's the problem. Behold, you desire truth right, in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Everything opposite of being a sinner. So what's the problem? The problem on one hand is David says, I was conceived in sin, and yet God can't have anything to do with that. He wants nothing. He wants truth. And so David really brings out the big problem here that he certainly felt in his own life, and we have felt, and we felt positionally, and certainly even after the fact, that sin separates. Sin separates. David theologically says, God, you can't have anything to do with me in my sin because you desire truth in the innermost being. That's a problem for anybody who, doesn't have, who has anything but truth in their innermost being, isn't it? And so David very plainly just kind of puts the problem that he has right on the table. And, and look at really the, the definitions, all the different terms that he uses, at least three terms for sin in the Hebrew. Look at verse 1. He says, Your compassions blot out my transgressions. Transgression literally means a rebellious act against authority. In verse 2, he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Iniquity literally means what is crooked or bent. Verse 3, verse 2, verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. We know, love this definition. Sin is what? Missing the mark. And look at the words related to God's forgiveness in verse 4. Excuse me, in verse 1. According to to the greatness of your compassion, blot out or completely remove my transgressions. Verse 2, wash away my sin thoroughly. Used of scrubbing clothes and removing stains. Verse 2, cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me. It's a ritualistic, uh, uh, from the whole Levitical system, a, a ritualistic term for pronouncing someone clean. So consider for a moment if we were to kind of substitute some of these words, and I'll try to do this hopefully uh, well here in verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, completely remove my rebellious actions against authority. Scrub and remove 
me thoroughly from my crooked and bent disposition. Ritualistically pronounce me clean from missing the mark. For I know my rebelliousness against all your authority. And my missing the mark is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I missed the mark and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. You get the point. David saw how his rebellion, how his bent disposition, how his completely his inability to, to hit the target separated him from God. And how he needed that washing, that purifying, that cleansing that only God could give. So God's Word tells us of the problem of sin that it separates. You know, and I think here, David really expresses this separation. You know, remember, this is a, this is a year-long saga in David's life. And David is, is, is really coming to terms with just how far away from God he was. And, and, I, and I often tell the teenagers that emotions are like dashboard indicators on a car. They're not necessarily wrong. If we live governed by our emotions, that is a very big problem. But it's also a very big problem to take duct tape or electrical tape and to put the low, uh, the low fuel light and to cover that up in the dashboard of the car. If you have a low fuel light, you should probably consider stopping at a gas station and, and, and spending some money. You can only ignore the high temperature light for so long. And so our emotions do help us to kind of understand that there's some problems underneath the hood of our lives. Not always. I mean, there's certainly... You understand your feelings. We can't be governed by them, but they are helpful. And, and I think here, uh, David really expresses his separation in, in, in very dramatic and necessarily so terms. He felt dirtiness. He felt unfitness to have a relationship with God. I mean, that's very apparent as we read through it. He, look at verse 8. In the, uh, verse 8, he says, Make me to hear joy and gladness. His joy filter had, had been, you know, zeroed out. He could not comprehend any joy in his life. Make me to hear joy and gladness again, God. Why? Because he was separated from God, from his sin. Not positionally, but he was separated from God. He was feeling what sin does. And so he says, make me to hear joy again. My jo the joy filter's on. Give it back. He says in verse Eight, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. If you, were, if you were tied up in adultery and murder for a year, and you were the man after God's own heart, would it feel like your bones were crushed? Like you're, you're, there's nothing but pressure on you? You and I, we've probably felt those exact things in our lives as we, we really feel the full weight 
and consequence of sin smack us in the face with the reality that we are separate from God as He intends. As He intends. And so that brings us to an important discussion in verses 11 and 12. He says, you know, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I, I believe firmly that David has experienced tremendous, tremendous weight from his sin. And the reality that he is separate from God, but not in the sense that some would take this verse and say that David either lost the Holy Spirit and or lost his salvation. And we wouldn't believe that here as a church. And so as we look at this next part, I'd like us to consider, okay, so, so what kind of a separation is this? This isn't, we, we, we even learn in our foundations books, this isn't a positional separation, but this is really a fellowship separation with God because we're in Jesus Christ. Well, David really is no different. Okay, can I say that again? David really is no different. David was saved through faith. It was a forward-looking faith to Jesus Christ. And what I'd like us to consider is not only does the Word of God operate in the realm of forgiveness for a believer, but, but so does this theological term, and I, I just wanted to stick with it, so does regeneration. We're going to see that here, the reality of regeneration for a believer. Regeneration is simply the impartation or the, the making of spiritually dead to spiritually alive. From spiritual death to spiritual life. And look at verse 10. He says, Create in me a clean heart. The last time I checked, the only person that can create is God himself. We can make, we can do a lot of cool things, but we cannot create something out of nothing. And that certainly is true in the spiritual realm. And so, G, uh, so David is going back to his regeneration, and he's saying, create in me a clean heart, O God. A clean heart. That's only something God can do. David really, whether he knew it or not, really just helped us define in his terms what regeneration is. Making something spiritually alive what was spiritually dead. And it is the act of the Holy Spirit. He says, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Verses 4, 11 and 12, as, as I've mentioned, can be problematic for some. And some would say that this points to the reality that an Old Testament believer could lose the Holy Spirit and, and may lose their salvation. Some would even go that far. And some would even go further to say that this is possible still in the New Testament. And so for a couple minutes, I just want to make sure that we understand that that's not possible. And what David is expressing is the weight of his sin and the reality that when God forgives, it's in the basis, it's on the basis not only of what the Word of God tells and convicts, but it is on the basis of being regenerated, of being created new in Jesus Christ. And so, 
uh, take your Bibles and just turn to Ezekiel chapter 36 for a moment. Hold your, hold your finger here and go to Ezekiel chapter 36. This is a millennial context for sure, but it helps us understand a little bit of the Old Testament believer and, and specifically regeneration. The Spirit of God who does the work of regeneration, making someone alive that is spiritually dead. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25. And we're going to leave Ezekiel, but I want you to hold your finger there and go back to, not now, but in a moment when I forget to tell you, go back to Psalm 51. But we'll be back in Ezekiel 36 in a second as well. Verse 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. Create in me a clean heart. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my Holy Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. See, the Old Testament believer knew the Holy Spirit and he knew him in the act of regeneration, of making dead spiritually alive. And there's no change between that and our New Testament dispensation, our church age. In fact... In John chapter 3, don't turn there because of time, but Jesus, remember uh, John chapter 3, Nicodemus, the teacher, says, what must I do to be saved? And he's talking to Jesus. And Jesus answered him and said, truly I, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he's talking about regeneration through the Holy Spirit, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then a few verses later, uh, Nicodemus kind of you know, talks, and well, how's that possible, all that stuff. And then a few verses later, you can tell that Jesus, under, uh, Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand this as being an Old Testament law professor. Because Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and, and do not know and understand these things? In other words, don't you understand that the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates and that you need to be born again to please God? And we understand that there's... That, that the stumbling, as, we'll, as we find out in Romans chapter 9 and chapter 10, the stumbling of the law was works, works, works. And, and it, that was never the point of the law. The point of the law was to always point to this regeneration, this need for a clean heart and pure life through the Holy Spirit. And so both salvation and sanctification require a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so as we are back in Psalm 51, so what is verses 11 and 12 talking about? Because that can be sometimes problematic, especially if, if you run into someone who says, you know what, this means that you can lose your salvation, or this means that an Old Testament believer at least couldn't have permanent salvation. Well, uh, certainly there was a, what's called a theocratic anointing of the Holy Spirit. You recall probably that this happened for not only David earlier on in his life, but it happened for Moses. It happened for Joshua, the judges, Saul, even John the Baptist to Jesus. And so what is this theocratic anointing you say? And it's just simply, 
imparting a special ability and gifts to the one who was called to theocratically rule God's people for that dispensation. And so it was a special gift or a special ability that was with a believer, um, or at least with the ruler that God had appointed. And so it certainly could be here, and could be within reason, that, that David is expressing this whole, do not take the Holy Spirit from me, he's expressing it in terms that he understands and knows from this special relationship that he as the ruler has with the Holy Spirit. And that certainly may be the case, and it may be possible, and, and, and we could probably hold to that and, and be just fine. And, and, and it, 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 we may even want to go as far as to understand that David didn't have an understanding about the Holy Spirit and an understanding about regeneration like we do today. David didn't, didn't have the luxury of pointing to the death of Jesus Christ and saying, my sins are finally paid for. Make no mistake about it, David's faith was authenticated through Jesus Christ, but that was a forward-looking faith, and he was kind of, he wasn't exactly sure what that would be. And so, what did David wrestle with year after year? I sinned, what do I do? I sacrifice. I sinned, what do I do? I sacrificed. And and so there, and Hebrews reminds us that it is impossible for the blood, for the blood of goats and bulls, right, to take away sin. And so the Old Testament believer, in some sense, didn't have this, this final payment in, in view in their life. Certainly a forward-looking faith. One author clearly puts it this way. There was always something unfinished about the status as an Old Testament saint. And there was And this was understood to a degree that precluded the kind of clarity and assurance the Spirit brings to the New Testament believer. In other words, the Old Testament believer, while the Spirit operated in their life, they didn't have the the full view of assurance assurance in mind because they didn't have a full view of, of Christ. And you and I know, right, at times in our life, how we wrestle with assurance. And we have a full view of our Christ and His final payment. Right? So now put yourself in David's situation. And, and, and so, if nothing else, if this is not just an anoint, a theocratic anointing that is, is really being talked about here, it's, it's very much an emotional plea with, 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 with a lack of a full view of assurance of, of, of all that David is in Christ. But to be clear, the mechanics of God's mercy and grace operate in regeneration, knowing full well the realities of regeneration. Scripture puts it this way, the the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. And and David really alludes to it, right? Verse 10, created me a clean heart. And verse 7, purify me, clean me, wash me, whiter than snow. Verse 2, wash me and cleanse me. And you know what's very interesting? The New Testament really borrows the concept of what the Holy Spirit does in regeneration. Right? In John chapter 3, in Titus chapter 
uh, three, there, there's places where we're, we're told that we're born of water and the Spirit. And we know that that's not baptism, but that's the reality that the Holy Spirit cleanses us. That's regeneration. That's the forgiveness of sins in our lives. That is what David's communicating here in verse 2 and in verse 7 and verse 10, that I am separate and I'm impure from God and I need a cleansing that I cannot do myself. And it is through the person of the Holy Spirit regenerating, making what was dead alive in Jesus Christ. And so, really, what is happening is you and I have the full benefit of knowing what this regeneration is and what it does for you and for me. Now, take your Bible back to Ezekiel chapter 36, and it is the exact same picture that we have in the Old Testament with the Spirit of God in His work and regeneration. In chapter 36, verse 25 again, he says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. Is regeneration about water? No. Just like it's not about water in John chapter 3, but it's about what regeneration does to the heart. It creates in me a clean heart to God. And so, you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And so now he puts it in the spiritual context, Ezekiel does. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my Holy Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So it is the picture of the Old Testament ritualistic cleansing and purifying and all the blood and, and the reality that there's stain after stain after stain and Water washes it all away. And the picture moves to the spiritual reality that that's what the Spirit of God does in your life and in my life with sin. And so, how does grace and mercy operate in terms of forgiveness in the believer's life? It operates through the Word of God. It operates through the realities of regeneration. That is why God forgives us. Because we have been made clean. We are pure in His sight. And when gr- mercy and grace are operating in the lives of believer, in, a, in the lives of a believer, they're letting the Word of God convict, the reality of re- regeneration assure of them of spiritual life. Their lives look like something. Their lives are transformed. And we're going to just hit this real fast and be done. In verses 13 and following, we see that mercy and grace operate in the believer's life, yes, through the Word of God, yes, through the realities and the assurances of regeneration, and yes, through the call of transformation of a believer's life. The believer's life will look different, and it will be different because they are to spiritually reproduce. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. They are to to, uh, 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 sing praise with their tongue, verse 14. And verse 17, to sum it all up, they are to have a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart, like a Philippians 2, is the very picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when mercy and grace operate in the believer's life and there is forgiveness, a forgiven 
saint will worship. We could summarize it this way. He will teach and reproduce. He will praise with his mouth. And he will offer sacrifices of a broken and contrite spirit. And so a believer who has been forgiven all will with all their life worship. In every area. And so when I let the Word of God hit me square in the face with what God says about sin in my life, and then I pull back and I, and I lay on the foundation of what the Holy Spirit through being born again in Christ has, means to me as a child of God, and as I walk in my life, I will in every area worship God. That's what a forgiven saint does. He worships, and a forgiven saint that's been forgiven all will in every area of his life worship. So at home, in the workplace, with his entertainment, with his iPod, with his relationships, in private, in public, he will worship God because he has been forgiven all. And so we... Pop open the hood tonight, and we see that God's mercy and God's grace operates through the Word, through the Holy Spirit, regeneration, and and then through our own lives and and worship as we celebrate and as we are thankful, just like David was, that God forgives, and He forgives so that we can worship Him. Father, tonight I pray that You would help us to, to really uh, just learn and understand that, uh, that there can be times in our life that we are uh, confused and, and feeling just like David does. And I, I pray that You would help us to really fully understand the role that you have for us with the Word of God, the role that you have for us with the Spirit of God, and then to pursue the role that you have for us in our life, to worship God. Pray that you would uh, empower us this week to, to live as forgiven saints and to be ever so thankful for the mercy and grace that operates in our life through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.